So many Christians around the world are being killed for their faith or sent into exile or put into prison because of their faith. Or some of them are enduring slavery and, and just a whole host of other horrendous trials. And thankfully for us, many of us, when compared to that, don't know much about those kinds of trials. And some of us, on the other hand, think we're in the midst of trials around every single corner. But not really in the real sense of the word trials, right? I remember my guitar collection before I got married and had kids. It it was glorious, let me just tell you. I think in my heyday I had 12, 12 guitars. Gibson Les Paul Goldtop, McCarty Soap Bar. I had a 52 uh, vintage Fender Telecaster reissue. Woo! Beautiful. M- m- most of those words mean nothing to most of you. I realize that. But, but those of you who know, know. Right? It was a good collection. And, and somehow, mysteriously, as life went on, that, that collection kind of dwindled quite a bit. Uh, I remember when I needed to pay for my honeymoon. And then I waved goodbye to the gold top, you know. And, and that was good. It was w- worthwhile. Then, then during seminary, you know, the, the books the books are expensive. And, and then the next guitar, sadly, goes bye-bye. And on and on it goes. Micah, you know, was born and had some medical issues, and we didn't have money, any money. And, but I had guitars to sell, and the Lord was good. And, and now, sadly, I have three only three guitars, right? The suffering I have endured. Right? I, I mean, now, now, of course, I would never trade any of those moments to have those guitars back, right? That, I would have to sleep outside tonight if I said yes. But sometimes when we are going through trials in situations like that, we, we, we make them bigger than they really are. We make these trials greater than they really need to be. Now, on the other hand, as you look around this room, some of you have been called to go through some really deep waters. Some of you have seen a child pass away. Or you've suffered infidelity in your marriages. Or you've lost employment at the worst possible time in your family's life. Or you know what it means to have a friend betray you. Or you've sat in a doctor's office and been given a frightening medical diagnosis. You've experienced broken family relationships. Or you've been involved in the long-term care of a loved one who has a debilitating illness. Or maybe you've just struggled with addiction, depression, suicidal thoughts. And the list can go on and on and on. And the reality for us is that there is absolutely no such thing as a Christian who is immune from trials. But it's a good thing for us this morning to put those trials into perspective in the light of God's word and to realize that there are some in this world that have been called to go through far more than we could ever hope or imagine. Now, God doesn't belittle our trials. In Revelation, we're told that God treasures up the tears of his people. 
And so the way that we also need to handle our trials is not to belittle them or to make light of them or to pretend like they don't matter to God. But instead, in this passage this morning, James is reminding us to look at our trials from a biblical perspective. To obey what God's word says when we're in the midst of these things. Now, as James speaks to us through his word, through God's word, he's going to give us some principles for dealing with these trials in verses two through four. And then in five through eight, he's going to talk about having wisdom in the midst of your trials. And then in 9 through 11, James is going to give us some illustrations as to why we need wisdom in the middle of our trials. And then lastly, in 12 through 18, he will give us a beautiful promise about the goal of trials in God's plan, as well as warning us about responding to trials in the wrong way. So those are the things we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, Let's look together at verses 2 through 4. Would you follow along with me as we read? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says something incredible right off the bat. He says that the trials you go through can be looked at with joy. And he's saying, in fact, that even your trials have a use or a purpose, that they're not happenstance. Every trial in the life of a Christian believer, every single one of them, serves God's purpose of bringing you and I to maturity in our faith. The purpose of your trials is to grow us In the grace of our God. These these words are astounding. If you think about the weight of them. When he says to you. Consider it all joy. When you meet trials of various kinds. You read that out loud. And it sounds ridiculous. To the world it sounds ridiculous. To say during the middle of suffering. You should be joyful. It sounds like one of those cheesy gospel songs from the 80s, right? Everyone knows Jesus and we're happy all day long and we're all holding hands and it's great. And you look around and you think, is everyone happy all day long except me? Am I the only one struggling in this moment with these situations? Am I the only one feeling discouraged or beat up? Am I the only one who feels like this struggle, this pain, is never going to go away? And James' words in these first few verses might sound ridiculous, but don't, don't write them off just yet. Because when he says to consider it all joy, I want you to understand this morning that his words are completely realistic. It's the calling for the Christian when we face trials in our own lives, to have joy. James is not telling us some miraculous secret. He's not trying to be some sort of self-help guru. In fact, if you look at the first word of verse 3, he's going to tell us that he's going to teach us something we should already know. 
Consider it. You already know it. Now start thinking about it. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, you already know that what James is telling you this morning is true. If you're a believer, you know that what he's telling you is true and important. He's not calling us to believe some new secret about God. He's calling us to believe what we already should know about our God. And notice what James says that we should do. If you follow verses 2 through 4, you're going to see James give a four-part counsel to a person who's in the middle of trials. And we're going to start at verse 4 and go backwards. Because in verse 4, he's going to tell you the purpose of your trials. Why are we supposed to go through trials? And that's where we start. And we work backwards from verse 4 to verse 2. Now in verse 4, notice what he says. He tells you that what, he tells you what the revealed purposes of God are in trials. What are, his, what are his purposes? To make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. God is using trials... To make you and I perfect. So that when you stand before him on that great day. You are as sinless as his son Jesus. Now that's that's a mind boggling truth. For us to wrestle with. That God's grand plan for your life. Is to make you perfect like Jesus was perfect. And James says this is where we need to start when we think about the trials in our own lives. That everything that is going on in your situation right now is part of God's overall goal to turn you into a person who is just like Jesus. To present you before himself as holy and blameless. Now let's work back to verse 3. So he tells us the purpose of God in verse 4. And he tells you the way in which God is accomplishing that purpose. The instrument that he uses to produce your perfection. What is it? The testing of your faith. The testing of your faith produces perseverance and endurance. So the goal is perfection. The instrument is testing. Now go back to verse 2. What is the setting for our testing? It's trials. Trials. The goal is perfection. The means is testing. Proving our faith so that it endures. And the setting for testing our faith is affliction, trial, pain, and suffering. And then if we go back from there, what is the response of the Christian To this truth. Joy. It's joy. But you cannot get that response until you understand the purpose or the end. You can't get to the end except through the means. You cannot have joy amidst your suffering and trials unless you understand what God is doing through them. 
James is giving us this formula to hide in our hearts so that when we go through these kinds of trials, when we endure this kind of suffering, we can look back at this truth and lean hard. And we need to hide it in our hearts so that it becomes second nature. Now notice he's telling us something that is exactly the opposite of how we instinctively respond when faced with trials. Our typical response is first off to question the purpose of God. We said, why, why is this happening to me? Right? That was Van's first response. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? How dare he? We go to the purpose of God and we question it. There are stacks of books in this world and web pages all over the place that, that deal with this exact issue. Asking questions that you and I will never be able to answer about the purposes of God. Most of the book of Job deals with this issue. Where Job stands before God and says, how dare you? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know how I've been living? And God's response is, where were you when I hung the foundations of the earth? Where were you, where were you when, I, when I put the universe in motion? We cannot understand or comprehend the secret purposes of God for some things in our lives. And the problem for us often is that we're starting off by asking the wrong question. James says that when you're in the midst of trials, you don't ask a question about the purposes of God. Instead, you ask a question about what he's already told you in his word. You don't have to try and figure out what God's agenda is. He's already told you in black and white. But what, what do we do? We want to know why. What, what's going on, God? Why, why? Why are you doing this? And we don't understand the cosmic ends of the universe. We don't understand the details of God's counsel or wisdom. Of course we don't. We're not God. And God tells us that the secret things belong to Him. But the things that He has revealed to us through His Word, those belong to us. And James says, don't try and figure out all of God's plans, all of God's purposes. Instead, go to His Word Lean hard on that and trust in what he's revealed to you here. Now, the second, second thing we typically do during our trials is we, we doubt the goodness and the wisdom of God. We say, Lord, how could you do this to such a wonderful person like me? I am so glorious and amazing. What were you thinking? Or, or sometimes we say, well, this, this doesn't make sense, God. You're giving me this trial, but you probably could have done it a better way. Doesn't, doesn't God know that I would respond so much better if he just brought me this way instead? We instinctively doubt the goodness and the wisdom of our God. 
But James says, no, go back and remember that the way that God brings about his purposes in you is by testing, is through trial. And he is doing it perfectly because he is a perfect God. One of the other ways we respond is we get bitter. But James says, no, throw off the bitterness and instead have joy. Do you see how incredibly opposite James's counsel is to us when our typical responses to trials are, are typically those things? James wants us to look at our trials and say, I have joy in the middle of this. And you can only do that if you understand and follow verses 2 through 4. And we also need wisdom on top of that, which he's going to unpack here for us in verses 5 through 7. You see, trials serve to test the genuineness of our faith. And it produces endurance in our faith and brings us to maturity to the maturity that God desires us to have. And so trials serve the purpose of grace. Samuel Rutherford said that grace grows best in winter. Why did he say that? Because it's in the afflictions and the sufferings of life that God grows us most in his grace. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. Excuse me, 5 through 8. And James says this, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, James in verses 5 through 8 is going to go on and speak about wisdom. And let me just stop right here for a moment. As you read through this entire section of Scripture, you might stop and ask yourself this question. You read 1 through 4, and you think, okay, he's talking about suffering and perseverance and trials. And now in 5 through 8, and again in verses 9 through 11, he begins talking about wisdom and poverty, and wealth. And it doesn't seem like a consecutive train of thought. But let me assure you that it absolutely is. Because even though he might be talking about trials in general, he's adding these practical words for us on wisdom, and poverty, and wealth. And they seem to just be kind of sandwiched in there, like James is going on this crazy rabbit trail. But let me try and help us fit this together this morning. Because in verses 5 through 8, James is talking about having wisdom in the middle of your trials. And he's telling us that what the Christian needs in order to have joy in the midst of a trial is wisdom. James is showing us the need for our wisdom in the middle of a trial. Now, now wisdom is a beautiful biblical concept. 
all over the pages of Scripture, God talks about wisdom. But here, I want you to understand the kind of wisdom James is talking about in this particular passage. In verse 5, when James says that we need wisdom and that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God for it, he simply means that wisdom is here to look at trials in life, as James told you in verses 2 through 4. You need to look at various trials as God intends them with his wisdom for your completion or perfection. Now, some people take this verse out of context and say, well, if I pray anything, God's going to give it to me. No, that's not what he's talking about here. James is reminding us that in order for us to make biblical decisions, to move forward towards maturity, that we need to look at our life and through these struggles, through the lens of God's wisdom. That's what James is talking about in verses 5 through 7. He says, if any of you lack the wisdom that you need to see what God's purposes are for your life, then ask God, and God promises to give you that wisdom. James says, here's here's what we need to do, Christian. When you stand in the middle of a struggle, a failure, a trial, Instead of throwing up your hands and questioning the purposes of God, he says, pray. Pray and ask for the understanding you need to get through it. Ask God for his wisdom to see his situation for your life through his eyes and not your own. And James is telling us God promises to give us that wisdom. The kind of wisdom that enables you to believe that what God said in his word is true. That the promises that he made to you and I will in fact come to pass. Now in verses 6 through 8, James talks about two different factors that can destroy your peace in the middle of a trial. And I want to point these out this morning because James talks in these verses about both doubt and double-mindedness. Look what he says. He says, you must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For a man ought not to accept, expect that he will receive anything, the Lord, being a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Now, when James is talking about doubt, he's not talking about doubt in general terms. He's talking about the doubt that we have in that God's word is true. When we have those moments where we doubt that God's promises will come to pass, when we're in the middle of a trial and we don't run to the word and lean on it. And then the double-minded person is one who's trying to live in two worlds at the same time. He's trying to live in the present world that will pass away and also this age to come which God has already established in the hearts of his people. Because the person who is double-minded wants both the goals and desires of this world and the goals and desires of this coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they want it all at the same time. Jesus reminds his disciples that you cannot serve 
both God and mammon. You just can't. And James is saying the exact same thing here. He says, if you have doubt and double-mindedness, that when trials come your way, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. If your heart is set on the things of this earth, when trials come, you will have no peace and no joy. It's only when we have set our minds on things above, with our focus on the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you're able to put your trials in the perspective that you need. But as long as you're double-minded, as long as you doubt God's word, you will have no peace, no hope, and no joy. So what the Christian needs in order to have joy in the middle of our trials is this kind of godly wisdom. A godly wisdom that allows us to trust a good and perfect God. And that's why James is transitioning here in verses 5 through 8. He gives us this illustration. And then, and then in verses 9 through 11, he's going to give us this illustration of, of wisdom in practice. And he's going to talk about wealth and poverty. So let's look at those verses together. Verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now James is talking this morning about the trial of both poverty and wealth. Now, everyone's going to line up on this side saying, Lord... Give me that trial of wealth. Right? I, I need that one, please. But James wants you to see that both of these are just worldly imposters. Poverty and wealth, they are simply trials that God gives us in order to produce maturity in our lives. You see, the poor man could easily fixate on his dissatisfaction in the midst of his situation. And he could think that his life would only be better if he only had what he didn't have. And he doesn't realize that he has been made rich in Jesus Christ and that there's nothing greater that God could have ever given us than what he's already given through Jesus. So what does biblical wisdom do for the poor man? It leads him, instead of being dissatisfied, to glory in his situation. Realizing that even in the midst of the world, looking at him as a poor person, he's exceptionally rich in Jesus Christ. Now on the other side, a rich man could look at his situation and become so satisfied with all the gifts and material possessions that he has that he forgets the giver. He could fall in love so easily with his riches that he could think that these material things are the most important things. And he could fall in love with them instead of falling in love with the giver. The rich could easily delight in his riches rather than realizing that all that surrounds him will ultimately pass away. 
And so prosperity is also a trial from God. Charles Spurgeon once said that there is no trial like prosperity. And if you make a comparison of Christianity in prosperous countries with Christianity in countries where Christians are poor, you can plainly see that truth. James wants us to be truly wise and see that both wealth and poverty are designed by God to grow us in His grace. It's a reminder for us that the way we respond to both lack and to plenty reveals our true attitudes, our true hearts towards God. And it shows whether we have real biblical wisdom. And if we're truly wise, James wants us to see that these trials, the trials of wealth and poverty, God has given us as a gift to grow us into his son's image. Now let's look at these last few verses, 12 through 18. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every... Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So one last thing in verses 12 through 18. Because James is going to make a categorical pronouncement about the goal of God's working in our lives through these trials. He says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When James tells us that, he's telling us the exact same thing that God has been telling us since the beginning of creation, since Genesis 2 and 3. To live your life in the light of a future hope. To live your life knowing that your God is going to do good to you on the last day. That he's going to reward you with his glorious promises. We're not called to live life like the pagans who think life is good and then you die. Or living by that lie that whoever dies with the most toys wins. People who live this way, who focus their eyes on the temporal, believe that this life is all there is and that there's nothing that comes after it. James is calling us to live lives in light of the good that God has promised us in his word. And then he says in verses 13 through 18 that we are to resist the temptation to fix blame on God or that in our trials that God has somehow tempting us to do evil or to sin. Now, James is not denying that God 
doesn't have a purpose for these trials in our lives. He is, however, saying that what God doesn't intend is to press you into sin. God's promises or purposes for your life are always to perfect you, to present you on the day of glory as holy and blameless and and pure. That is always God's purpose in trials. But where does the sin and evil come from? It comes from you. It comes from me. It comes from our hearts. It comes from the desire to sin. And James reminds us to not be deceived. Look at verses 16 through 18. He says, don't be deceived as you're trying to figure out what God is doing through these trials. Don't fall for the lie like Eve did in the garden. When Satan said to Eve and to Adam, God isn't really telling you the truth. He doesn't really have your best interest in mind. He's holding back from you. You should want more. God is being stingy in the way he's dealing with you. He's not really giving you the best that he could give. And James is saying, don't don't fall for that lie. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from the Father above. So when when you encounter trials, as we all will, don't think that our God is a stingy God. Don't think that he doesn't have your best interests in mind. God's purposes are always good. And every single good that we experience in this life comes only from him. And that should change how we view our trials and our suffering in this world. Because when God calls us to be perfected through suffering, he's only calling us to go the way of his only begotten son. Hebrews 5.8 says that he learned obedience through that which he suffered. And so if we are going to walk through our trials with joy and wisdom, we must cling to two truths. The goodness of our God and the purpose of our God in using trials to bring us to completion. Because trials in the hands of God are the medicine of grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge this morning that you are a good God. That every perfect gift, every good and perfect gift comes from you alone. Lord, you give us these things and often we don't understand them in the season of that we're going through them. And yet, we can stand firm on this truth that you are good. That your purposes for these situations in our lives aren't, aren't to destroy us, but to make us like your son. And so, Lord, I pray for each one here that we would have joy in the midst of those trials. That we would have wisdom to lean on your word when we don't understand what you're doing. That we would see the truth. That we would praise your name even in the midst of our suffering. 
Heavenly Father, you, you are good. And you are faithful. And we thank you for the work that you're doing in each one of our lives to bring us on that last day to a place of completion. And it's in Jesus' holy name we say, amen.